Well, good morning. Whether it's here or at the community center or at the middle school, it's always wonderful to be with you. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Jonah chapter 4. <clears throat> Just so you know, I am getting over a cold, so if I happen to cough a little bit, don't worry, it's all part of the plan. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning as we come to your word. Let it encourage us, challenge us, and even convict us. Send your spirit and help us respond well. Amen. Well, lessons can be really hard to learn sometimes, especially if you're not emotionally mature enough to receive them. They can seem unfair, inconvenient, and even infuriating. One particular lesson that had this effect on me involved a fishing trip at a small lake with my older brother, my dad, and my grandpa. I was maybe six or seven years old, and I was fishing on one side while my brother was fishing on the other. I was having decent success and had caught four or five small trout, and I had put a string through the fish and left them in the water for safekeeping. And then all of a sudden, on the other side of my lake, my brother catches a huge fish, three or four times bigger than any of the ones I had caught. So, I went to the other side of the lake, because apparently that's where the big fish were. Figured I could catch a big fish over there. Well, I never caught a big fish, and after trying for a while, feeling defeated, I decided to head back to the original place where I'd caught the smaller fish. And I arrived just in time to see a turtle helping himself to the last of the fish I had caught. I was, of course, furious and somehow managed to blame my brother because, after all, he was the one who caught the fish and made me want to go to the other side. But I learned that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, and sometimes it's good to be content with what you have. And as we'll see this morning, Jonah also finds a, finds a very hard lesson to learn. Though instead of a lack of emotional maturity, though that may be the case here as well, he lacked the spiritual maturity to reconcile God's character to the situation he finds himself in. How could it be that a holy God who demands righteousness and obedience be so merciful to the Ninevites, who are morally corrupt and extremely evil? It seems so unfair. But to back up a bit, how did we even get here? What events transpired to lead the, that led to this moment for Jonah? Well, the book begins with the evil of Nineveh coming up before God. So God calls Jonah to go preach against it. But Jonah, knowing he serves a God of mercy and compassion, instead boards a ship headed in the exact opposite direction. Jonah has no intention of risking the mercy of God finding its way to the evil Ninevites. So he runs from God. And we find that while God instructs Jonah to get up, Jonah went down to Joppa. And then he went down to board the ship. Then he went down to its lowest parts. The author of Jonah uses this downward language to highlight the spiritual direction of Jonah. Down, down, down into disobedience. While comfortably sleeping in the bottom of the ship, God very intentionally throws a violent storm at the ship, so it's on the brink of destruction. The sailors scrambling to save the ship and their lives soon discover they came into this predicament, because of the disobedience of Jonah. The solution to the sailors' protest is to throw Jonah overboard. And as soon as they do, the storm stops. And while Jonah sinks down in the sea, 
the sailors look up to God and thank him and even worship him and offer sacrifices to God. The irony, of course, being that the pagan sailors show themselves to be much more spiritually mature than the prophet they just threw overboard. Meanwhile, in chapter 2, as the pagan sailors worship the living God, Jonah surely assumes he's near death, drowning in the sea, and then especially as he's swallowed by a large fish. But to Jonah's surprise, the fish is not an instrument of death, but rather an instrument of mercy, as God specifically appointed the fish to preserve Jonah's life. And as Jonah sits in total darkness next to whatever else the fish swallowed, he decides now would be a good time to offer a prayer to God. And while Jonah's prayer is orthodox, it proves to show he's still oblivious to his deep heart issue as it ends up being an indirectly prideful prayer that lacks anything resembling true repentance for his disobedience. Nevertheless, God commands the fish to vomit up Jonah on the shore, and Jonah finds himself probably hungry, thirsty, quite smelly, but alive and on dry ground. In chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah once again, and this time Jonah decides it's in his best interest to go to Nineveh as the Lord instructed him. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, and even though he basically does the bare minimum, he does proclaim the coming destruction to Nineveh because of their evil, which quickly results in a citywide repentance from the greatest to the least of them, small kids, babies, even animals taking part in a fast and wearing sackcloth to show their repentance and turning from evil. And at the end of chapter 3, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relents from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. And then we come to chapter 4. And while God has been instructing Jonah the entire book so far, it reaches its high point here in chapter 4, where God very intentionally, even with an object lesson, instructs and reminds Jonah about the nature of his character. So in chapter 4, we have a lesson on God's character. And we see this unfold in three parts. First, Jonah's resentment and retreat. Second, God's object lesson. And third, God's final challenge. So first, Jonah's resentment and retreat. Let me read verse 1 through 5. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in the shade to see what would happen to the city. So God relents from destroying Nineveh. And what is Jonah's response? What we see in verse 1, it infuriates him. He was greatly displeased and became furious. And at this point, while we may be able to guess why, in verse 2, Jonah prays to God and reveals exactly why he's angry. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. What we have seen hints of in the first three chapters now comes into full focus. Jonah cannot reconcile how he sees the mercy of God and the justice of God, or lack thereof, play out in this Nineveh situation. As far as Jonah is concerned, there's an imbalance in God's character. 
He shows too much compassion. Specifically for Jonah, God shows showing the Ninevites compassion crossed the line. God has gone too far, and Jonah questions the integrity of God's justice. Jonah's thinking, how could you? How could you show mercy to these people who, who would burn cities to the ground? These people who would proudly display the way they would torture, dismember, and decapitate their enemies. Horrible, horrible things. And Jonah doesn't think they deserve to be recipients of God's mercy. God's too soft. And this is what he says in his prayer. And notice he quotes part of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. You see, he tries to set God against God by using God's word. He says, you know, you're, you're a God of mercy and compassion, but you're not willing to execute justice when needed. He tries to use God's word as an argument against God, but what, what does he leave out? He leaves out verse 7, which says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity to the children and the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. So what does Jonah do? Well, he presents a picture of God that's not completely accurate. God is compassionate and gracious, but he's also just, and sin will not go unpunished. And Jonah only emphasizes one aspect here to try and prove his point. And as we can see, while Jonah does, does need to sort out the character of God and the fairness of his compassion, what also leaps off the page is, is Jonah's struggle with a self-righteous pride. Remember when he was praying in the belly of the whale? He ends his prayer with, Salvation belongs to the Lord. But what does he say right before that? Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's subtle, but his pride is on display even, by, even while being rescued from God, by God. And as we see here in chapter 4, as Jonah bursts into this anger-filled and emotional prayer, he has the audacity to tell God who deserves compassion. You got it wrong, God. I knew this would happen. That's why I ran in the first place, and sure enough, you went and screwed it up. You gave compassion when you should have given destruction. You're usually pretty good in your judgments, God, but this time, I know better, and you should have listened to me. And as we think of Jonah here trying to instruct God on compassion giving, it seems comical because it's ridiculous. Jo Jonah, what are you doing? And it is ridiculous. But we so often do the same thing in a much more subtle and tactful ways, don't we? Or at least I know I do. What are we doing every time we sin? We're disobeying God. Rejecting what he's called us to do. And when we fall into sin, we're saying to God, I know better. This actually will make me happy. This action actually is legitimate in this situation. I know I shouldn't, but... And the list goes on. We convince ourselves we know better than God all the time. Sin is deceitful like that. If we were always able to see our sin as being as ridiculous as Jonah telling God how he got it wrong, we would more, much more easily see our sin for what it is and resist. But sin is deceptive and we're often deceived. And just as we peel back the layer of Jonah's misunderstanding of the character of God and found his self-righteous pride, when we peel back the pride, what we end up finding is Jonah has a very big idolatry issue. Why is Jonah prideful after all? 
What does he have to be self-righteous about? What makes him so much better than the Ninevites? Well, Jonah was an Israelite. He was a member of the chosen people of God. The people God would bless. The people God made a covenant with. So as far as Jonah was concerned, he was better than every other group of people because no one else was the chosen people of God. And the more this pride took root in Jonah's heart, and the more he convinced himself that he really was better, the more he acted like he was better. His commitment to his race and nation slowly became the most important thing in his life. It soon became an idol as he prioritized his infatuation with his race and nation above his commitment to God. And as we peel back the layers to see Jonah's idolatry, his actions through this book start to make more sense. Jonah didn't react the way he did because he wanted to try out something new. He reacted the way he did because the thing that was most important to him was threatened. And people can do weird things when their idols are threatened. God's compassion toward Nineveh threatened a very comfortable pattern of thinking Jonah had settled into as an Israelite. God blesses us, not you. God has chosen us, not you. We are holy and obedient, not you. You don't get to just repent of your sin and get compassion. That's not how it works, thought Jonah. You see, Jonah had created his own little world with all sorts of wrong assumptions regarding himself and God. And and when this perfect little world is threatened, he reacts. The thought of his world being threatened makes him run in chapter 1. And now that God has done the unthinkable, he lashed out against God because God isn't who Jonah wants him to be. And you even see in verse 3, he'd rather die than face the reality of a God who recklessly disrupts, distri- distributes compassion on people who don't deserve it. Now, does Jonah actually want to die? Probably not. Most likely he's just trying to get God to change his mind about destroying Nineveh. And not surprisingly, God knows exactly what's going on in Jonah's heart. So he asks a very simple yet incredibly perceptive question. Is it right for you to be angry? And with this question, God starts to shed light on the elephant in the room. Let's talk about your anger, Jonah. But Jonah's not ready to talk. He refuses to answer God. Instead, he leaves so he can go pout. Verse 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Jonah would much rather make himself comfortable and wait and watch to see if Nineveh slips up and rekindles God's anger than to have a conversation with God. So, first we had Jonah's resentment and retreat. And second, we have God's object lesson. So Jonah's sitting in his little shelter that he built, pouting and feeling sorry for himself, watching over the city in hopes that somehow things would change course and God would destroy Nineveh. And if you remember, Nineveh was located in modern-day Iraq which can be very hot, very dry, very unpleasant. And this is why Jonah built a shelter. He knew he'd be miserable sitting under the hot sun. And did you notice the type of of environment Jonah always ends up in every time he flees God? First time he fled from God, he ended up in an inhospitable sea. And this time when he flees from God, he ends up in an inhospitable desert. Which, if nothing else, gives us a good reminder and mental picture of the reality of fleeing God. It never ends well, and ultimately will put us in a spiritually inhospitable state. Running from God is always running toward danger. There's nothing safe about it. 
And even though Jonah has constructed his own hut for shade in this hot environment, God has something else in mind too. Verse 6, Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Surprisingly, God makes the plant grow over Jonah. And And the first reason we're given for this plant is the shade it provides for him. And Jonah's very pleased, which not only emphasizes the harsh environment he's in, but apparently it's not till now that he actually has a, a decent amount of shade to actually block him from the sun. So the little hut that he built for himself probably wasn't all that great. But there's another reason given for the plant. You see that? It says to rescue him from his troubles. Or some other translations say to deliver him from misery or rescue him from discomfort. And this Hebrew word translated as troubles, misery, or discomfort, depending on the translation, is the same word that's often used as disaster or evil. And with the literary sophistication we've seen so far in this book, it's very likely this word carries a double entendre. It refers not only to the physical discomfort Jonah is experiencing from the heat, but also the internal bitterness that plagues him. Back in chapter 1, what was it that spurred God to send Jonah to Nineveh? They're evil. Same word. That come up against him. And now the prophet who was sent to the evil city to warn them of destruction finds himself needing to be rescued from the evil in his own heart. <clears throat> but, Jonah's not, but Jonah is very delighted with the plant. And, and you notice, the reaction Jonah has to God's mercy depends on who's receiving it. You see that? Mercy causes two reactions in Jonah. When extended to his enemies, it's displeasing. But when he finds himself receiving mercy, he was overjoyed. So Jonah sits very happy, feeling relief from the hot sun. But the next morning, verse 7, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun blew down on Jonah's, beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. So the day after the plant appears, God sends a worm to attack the plant and it dies. So here we have this object lesson of God really starting to take shape. The plant symbolizes God's mercy and the worm symbolizes God's judgment. And we can really appreciate God's method of instruction here. God doesn't present a scroll to Jonah or start an audible sermon describing the state of his heart and has its place. But inconsistent with God's character, that instruction has its place. But Jonah needed to feel this instruction. He needed the lesson to be tangible and personal. You notice God doesn't say anything about this object, anything throughout this object lesson. He just does actions. He appoints a plant to grow and provide shade. He then appoints a worm to kill the plant. He then appoints a scorching east wind. It's a really pathetic scene. Jonah, the mighty prophet of God who came to Nineveh and declares God's message to wicked people who repented of their evil ways, is sitting outside the city that just had an amazing transformation. Every person turning from their evil ways and wrongdoing, many, many people probably willing to provide the messenger something to drink and some shade, but no. The prophet of God sits with his pathetic man-made shelter, the plant that God provided withered next to him and dead, and the scorching east wind surely blowing sand all over him, 
no protection, completely exposed. And finally, Jonah speaks. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. He's sick of it. He hates the wind. He hates the sun. He hates that the plant is dead. He hates that the Ninevite that the Nineveh isn't destroyed. He'd be better off dead, he says. And once again, most likely, much more of a moment of emotional, uh, emotional statement than an actual desire for death. But that's how he felt in the moment. He hated everything that was happening. And we have to wonder, why? Obviously, Jonah has a flair for the dramatic, as we've seen, but, but why sit and suffer rather than look up and repent? Why the stubbornness? Why the drama? Why the pouting? Well, it's because it can feel good. It can feel good to pout, can it? And again, even as we rightly critique Jonah's response, it does provide a good opportunity to ask ourselves, what kind of response do we have when things don't go the way we envisioned and we're frustrated about a situation? I know, at least for me, when something doesn't go my way or when I'm challenged on something, I can quickly respond in stubbornness because I'm too prideful to have my first assumption be that I might be wrong. And then as I hold on to that pride and stubbornness, I move into pouting and feel sorry for myself. We may not be as dramatic as Jonah, but we can often do the same thing. Maybe it's little moments throughout the day, or maybe it's a bigger situation that spans over a long period of time. But we can do the same, can't we? And sometimes we come to terms with our actions and repent, and sometimes we need to be pushed and challenged a bit more. And God decided that Jonah needed to be pushed a bit more. And that's what we have in our last section. So we've had Jonah's resentment and retreat, God's object lesson, and now lastly, God's, fin God's final challenge in verses 9 and 11. So after the object lesson, Jonah is still intent on holding on to his anger. So God presses Jonah again and asks him the same question Jonah refused to answer back in verse 4, but this time specifically about the plant. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah, without missing a beat, responds, Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. Now, to be fair, to a certain extent, Jonah does have a right to be angry. When God first asked the question in response to Jonah's anger over God's mercy toward Nineveh, back in verse 4, Jonah did not have a right to be angry. However, here, God extended mercy in the form of a plant only to snatch it away in the same day. We'd probably be frustrated too. But of course, God's not talking about just the plant. So God explains himself to Jonah. Verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left, as well as many animals. And that's the end of the book, which we'll come back to in a moment, but it does end up end somewhat abruptly, doesn't it? And here we can see God's final challenge that he explicitly points out the inconsistency of Jonah's position. You see, Jonah assumes he has a right to be distressed over his own experience of God's divine justice. While at the same time, he doesn't think it's right for God to be distressed over the thought of executing justice upon Nineveh. And God also points out how much more important Nineveh is than the plant. He describes Nineveh as a great city which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left. 
And this number, 120,000, isn't meant to be exact. It's a, a standard expression of the day for a, a multitude or a large number. In other words, this was a very, very large city. The Ninevites are also described as people who cannot distinguish their right from their left. This is a reference to, a, to proper observance of God's law for Israel. God would often warn Israel not to turn to the right or to the left as they walked in obedience to God. And of course, the ability of Israel to di distinguish between the right and the left in the way of obedience is because they have the law of God, special revelation unique to, to Israel. <clears throat> That's not something the Ninevites have access to. They don't have the special revelation of God's law. So God is basically saying, it's, it's my prerogative, Jonah, not yours. I'm the God who extends mercy, and I'm the God who decides who I extend mercy to. Not you, Jonah. I know the Ninevites are not Israelites. I know they don't have the law, but I'm still going to extend mercy. I'm not beholden to your incorrect view of how I execute justice and mercy. Jonah needed a lesson on God's character because he wasn't understanding it correctly. But it's important to ask what form did that misunderstanding take? Or put another way, from where is his misunderstanding derived? When I started my current job, on the first day I was introduced to a software program called LumberTrack, which is a program we use to enter orders and shipments and track sales and everything. It's a massive software program that has layers upon layers of capabilities. In the first few days, weeks, and months, I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't understand the program. However, this was expected and acceptable because my misunderstanding was derived from ignorance. That's very different than a misunderstanding derived from obstinance. And that's what Jonah's issue is. It's not an issue of getting more time in because he's new to this and doesn't understand the basics of God's character. There's something more going on here. Something much deeper than a simple, simple misunderstanding due to ignorance. Very often, when somebody's angry with God because they didn't get their way or because God did what they didn't want him to do, very often... Not always, but very often, the issue is not a simple misunderstanding because of ignorance. It's a deep-rooted sin issue that needs to be dealt with. As one commentator states with reference to Jonah praying for death, he says, <clears throat> Jonah is praying for death because the Lord's attributes, so frequently stated to praise him, are loathsome to the prophet, and his unwilling participation in their application has deprived his life from meaning. His unwilling participation in their application has deprived his life of meaning. Jonah's issue is pride and idolatry. He's holding on so tightly to this narrative because that because he's an Israelite, he's better than the Ninevites. He's more deserving of compassion. He's an Israelite, God's chosen people. He's a prophet after all, the God of the universe. He's a recipient of this special revelation of the law of God. And God made a covenant with his people. So Jonah has coddled his infatuation with himself and his narrative so much that it's become an idol. And when his idol is threatened, suddenly his life is deprived of meaning and he acts accordingly. As I mentioned, this, as I mentioned earlier, this book the book does end, up, end somewhat abruptly. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. God challenges Jonah to reassess his perspective. And as the book ends, 
Interestingly, in, in verse 2 and 3, when Jonah prays and tells God how he made, when Jonah tells God how he knew that all this would happen and he's frustrated, in, in the original Hebrew, Jonah's express, Jonah expresses himself in 39 words. And here in verse 10 and 11, God uses the exact same number of words to challenge Jonah's reasoning. Which is the author's way of saying, yes, I know this is a cliffhanger, but it's an appropriate ending. God's response matches Jonah's complaint. So how will Jonah respond? What will Jonah say? Will Jonah finally learn his lesson, repent, and reorient his perspective? We don't know. We don't know. We're not told. And this is very purposeful by the author because as we're searching for some sort of resolution, we're meant to look in the mirror and ask ourselves how we're doing. So I ask myself as I ask you, is there anything in our lives that when taken away from us would make us react the same way Jonah did? Is there something we're holding on to? Maybe it's an assumption about God. Maybe it's an assumption about ourselves. Maybe it's a chip on our shoulder. It can be all sorts of things, something from the past. But if there's, if there's something other than the hope we have in Christ, that this is the main all-important thing that we live for, then we need to let God reframe our perspective. And even though we don't know what happens to Jonah after the conclusion, we are left disappointed. And that's with intention too. Because Jonah isn't the prophet we need. Jonah's a disappointment. We need a prophet who won't look at crowds of people with hate, hoping for destruction. We need a prophet who looks at crowds with care and compassion. We don't need a prophet who is prideful and disobedient to the point of wishing for death, but a prophet who humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We don't need a prophet who runs away when asked to go on a mission of mercy by God. We need a prophet who willingly goes to seek and save the lost. And of course we have the prophet we need. We have Christ. We don't need Jonah. Jonah couldn't reconcile the justice and mercy of God. But Jesus is the prophet who through his death not only reconciled the world to himself, but at the same time experienced the just wrath of God and also enabled us to experience the mercy of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jonah is not the prophet we have to hope in, but that you've sent your son who is a messenger and deliverer of your mercy. And it's his name we ask. Amen.